Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. Oh, man. So you might have noticed I was limping up here again. Oh, man, it's almost comical. (laughs) Um, So my foot's feeling better. Um, But I think once my foot started feeling better, I, I got a little, I don't know, arrogant in my movement, you know, and so I threw out my back. And so I've been getting back spasms the last couple days. And so... Yeah, that's where I'm at. And so if you see me wince in pain, you know, it's, don't worry about it or just, hey, pray, pray for me. Um, God is faithful and I've preached through back spasms before. I've, I've preached through concussions and migraines. And so just to let you know, that's where we're at this morning. So I'm going to try to fix this mic real quick. See if that helps at all, so I'm not just popping, um, or that's just the sound of my back. Well. <laughs> so, and yeah, um, I've reached that age in life where I'm falling apart. The hockey injuries are catching up with me. Um, I feel them all the time. I'm also at that age in life where I can remember specific dates um, from stuff that happened decades ago. Song lyrics for songs I don't like from 40 years ago, and I can remember them. And yet, if you ask me, uh, hey, what did you do last night? Or what did you do two nights ago? All I can do is just shrug. I don't even remember what I did this week. And so I usually look at Gianna to tell me what I did because I already forgot. Um, But one of those dates that I remember specifically is November 9th, 1989. You guys remember November 9th, 1989? And so, yeah, a couple of you, yeah, and if you have, you know, any, you know, if you're familiar with Europe or in Europe and Germany, this is a huge, huge day. Um, I was in eighth grade, and this is the only reason I know what happened is because I had a teacher who was German, came in crying, just came in crying, um, didn't know what was wrong. She brought in her, her giant TV, it was like three feet long in the back, you know, and like a VCR, and plugged it in to show us the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. And again, I didn't realize it at the time how important it was, but I knew by my teacher's response, this is a huge deal. This is, this is a date that you have to remember. And so tearing down of the wall was just a huge part of the freedom eventually of Germany. Um, I, I believe also the beginning of the freedom from the Cold War. This was a huge deal, the tearing down of this wall. And yet, just as important as this date is, and I believe it is hugely important, I mean, we're gathered here today because of another important date, right? And that's when another wall was torn down, the wall between us and God, that wall of hostility. You know, that moment where Jesus, like God in the flesh, died and was buried and rose again three days later, that very important moment in history that brought us freedom from sin. Um, If you're a community group this week, you know that it it brought us freedom from uh, the penalty of sin. Awesome, right? And the practice of sin so we could fight sin 
in our daily lives and the pain of sin, you know, which can still haunt us even after we know that it's already been dealt with. And so there was this wall that was brought down. And we see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, where it says, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So that's Jesus' body was just destroyed to bring down that wall between us and God. And so there's a lot of people, though, um, out there who don't know November 9th, 1989. And that's fine. You know, it doesn't really... It's not as important a date to know, but there's also people out there that don't know that, that Jesus died for them. They don't know that God was hung on a cross. They don't know that we buried God and that he came back to life for them. And, this, and they need to know about this, this good news that's for them. So just who are these people who need to hear the gospel? Who are these people that need to hear the gospel? And whenever I ask that, I want our response to always be, Everyone, including you and me, right? I'm going to preach this over and over. We need the gospel just as much as anybody else, lest we forget, like forget our awe. Like this is incredible. Like the gospel is amazing. But if we don't hear it all the time and preach it to ourselves, we're going to forget. And we're going to lose our confidence as well. You know, our confidence and our faith is that Christ conquered the grave, like we should be confident about that. And that's why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves over and over. And then absolutely go out to the people of Bakersfield because they absolutely need to hear it as well. You know, in John chapter 3, and as we'll see in, in John chapter 4, as we go through a big chunk of John chapter 4 this morning, Jesus is sharing his gospel with different people. People like we're going to meet. You know, like in John chapter 3, he, he meets with Nicodemus which is like half the people we're going to meet in Bakersfield who have some sort of religion. You know, they, they know what they believe or think they know what they believe. And then we're going to see today that Jesus is going to talk to people who other people would not bother talking to, you know, who aren't religious, who aren't, have no idea what is happening. And so and we're going to run into these people in Bakersfield as well. You know, and so what we will find is as Jesus shares his gospel, he's going to break through these barriers and tear down these walls of who we're going to share the gospel with. We're going to see the gospel come from just being about God and his people, but Christ showing like it's spreading. This is the moment where, and it's really been happening through John already, where you see Jesus just going into the temple and knocking stuff over and making new wine. Like this is, everything is changing because of Christ. He's coming up, setting up his ministry, setting up the church, going through and changing everything. And so he breaks down the wall of hostility for us, but the gospel also breaks down the barriers that we have with other people in our society and our community. And I think this is going to be very evident um, this morning. You know, and maybe like me, you, uh, I can't think of a good word to say, annoyed at all the walls that are up in our society. And so whether it's politics or religion or COVID or masks or, or sex um, even what sports team you root for. We're just putting up walls everywhere to block everybody out. Like we're not a society that puts up bridges to others or looks for things that are in common. It's like, let's find everything we don't have in common and let's fight about those. And that's definitely not uh, what Jesus is showing us this morning. And I think a lot of us have done it uh, even without realizing it to some extent, including myself, as I will share this morning. And I believe this happens when the gospel is not at the center of our worldview. 
if Jesus is not the king of our minds and our hearts, when we look at the people around us, we look at our society, we look at our world, we're going to do it through whatever lenses, you know, we're thinking through at that moment, whether it be politics, I mean, whatever it might be, we're not looking through the lens of the gospel. We don't look at the fact that everybody needs the gospel. And so we need to let whatever disagreements, right or wrong, not let us put up walls between sharing our faith with anybody. Those people who we have nothing in common with and who we might be repulsed by are people uh, who were sinners just like you and me, who were transformed by the gospel. So let's look this morning um, at this example of Jesus breaking down these walls to share the gospel. Our text today is going to be John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. <clears throat> Our sermon is called Breaking Down Walls by the Well. Let me pray for us before we dive in. Oh, uh, good, awesome Lord, uh, we adore you. We thank you for saving sinners like us. We thank you for your grace and mercy, Lord, um, that the gospel would, would go from, from one place, as we read about in John, to, to all throughout the world, to even Bakersfield and um, I pray even beyond to all the ends of the earth, Lord, may people know Christ and exalt him. Lord, I ask that you would be worshipped and honored by our service. As we talk about your son, Lord, may our hearts be transformed and conformed, Lord, to your holy word, Lord. And I ask, so I know there's several of us that are not feeling good this morning, Lord. I just ask that you would, um, in your faithfulness and grace, Lord, um, bring us through this service with the joy that we have in you, Lord. Amen. So let's start by reading John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And, we'll, and so, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples did, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus leaves Galilee. We talked a lot about baptism the last couple of weeks, and, and Jesus is winning the baptisms, right? He is starting to get more baptisms than anybody. People are not happy about it, and Jesus says, like, it's time to go, guys. Let's move on. We'll start baptizing somewhere else. And as it says here, you know, even though Jesus is God, he's taken on human flesh and he's tired, he's exhausted. It mentions the time of day here, uh, which the sixth hour is about noon. And so it's extremely hot. So God is tired and thirsty and needing to rest. And he goes to the well of Jacob. And let's continue reading verses seven through 10. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, is going to ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And verse 9 is really the key to, the, to this passage this morning as we're studying this. As this woman says to Jesus, like, how can you? You're a Jew. You know that, right? I know you're a Jew. Like, do you not see the fact that I am a woman? Like, do you not see the fact that I am a Samaritan? This, this is a very huge deal. And there's some de debate 
Um, and there always has been about this woman. Is she being like very sassy? You know, is she being like obnoxious here? Because you could read it like that. Or is she being very genuine and she's just bringing up a genuine concern? Like maybe, maybe he doesn't realize that this shouldn't be happening. Um, I, I definitely lean towards the fact um, that she's probably ha- that has an attitude, that she's kind of sassy. And I say that because of what we do know. And so what we do know is that women don't come to the well alone. That's not something you do. You come with other women, you know, or, or if you need some muscle, you could bring somebody else with you, usually children. And so our, you know, strong, muscular children are men. And so the fact she's at this woman, uh, she's at this well alone, it's not a good sign that she would be there alone. Secondly, um, this is the worst time of day to come. Literally, if you said, what is the worst time of day you can go to a well it's noon. Like, you don't do that. So whatever's going on with this woman, we can infer that she's an outcast of sorts. There's something about her, and I don't know if it's because she's sassy, but there's something about her. I and mean, we will see a little bit of it, but there's something about her where she doesn't want to be around other people and or other people don't want to be around her. And so this is very key. And so um, the important part here, though, is the fact that she's a woman. As she stated, like, uh, you know, I don't know if she looked masculine or, or, or what's happening, but she is absolutely a woman, and that's the key part here because he's talking about eternal life. Jesus is talking about living water, eternal life, talking about the gift of God that he is, and he's doing it with a woman. And so this is the first wall that Jesus knocks down or tears down, breaking that wall of gender with the gospel breaking down that gender wall. You know, it may, it may seem weird to us in our society, but men and women were not level in this text. So in this part of history, men in this part of the world specifically, men were considered more important than women. It's, it's just the way it was. And it was not appropriate for a man to talk to any woman. Like you weren't allowed to talk to them. If you talk to anybody, like a woman who wasn't related to you, scandal, scandalous. If you talk to a woman who wasn't related to you for 20 minutes, it's an affair. You might as well have had an affair if you talked to a woman more than 20 minutes. Moreover, one thing, even if you had, you know, a slight conversation like asking for water, you know, that's one thing. But one thing you couldn't do, man to woman, subject you couldn't talk about is religious matters. You cannot talk about religion. Like a man cannot talk to a woman about religious matters. In fact, to be a scholar, and this is documented, I forget if they're called like the six rules or six parts of being a religious scholar is do not talk to women or you can't talk to women. Like you you can't let them influence your, your theological thought at all. And so here Jesus is going to someone that other society, other people in society wouldn't look twice at. Um, somebody that nobody wants to be around, that nobody values, and he's offering her the greatest gift ever. And so listen to this discussion in verses 11 through 15. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so Jesus is having a theological gospel conversation with a woman, right? Scandalous in its context. And, and notice he doesn't even address the gender issue. Doesn't address the issue because it's not an issue. The issue is she needs him. The issue is this woman needs Jesus, right? That, that is the, the overriding main issue here. And so Jesus begins to use this analogy of the well and the water, and so Jacob's well is a source of pride for Samaritans. It's one thing like they were very proud of. If you, if you visited uh, Samaria, this is where they took you to. Look, at this is Jacob's well. Um, there was all kinds of myths and magical stories about it. It has this crazy long history about it. And so this woman, you know, she sounds annoyed. It's because Jesus is saying like, my water is better than Jacob's water. And that's exactly what he's saying. Like Jesus is better than Jacob. Jesus is greater than Jacob. He is a greater gift than this well was. In him, one can have eternal life and satisfaction. Uh, that thirst for meaning and hope are satisfied in him. And again, Jesus shares this incredible theological truth with a woman. Now in our day, I, I believe for the most part, there's not a distinction between men and women. Not, not, not in America, not in the West. So I don't think this is a wall that we deal with. And so I don't think the practical application of this is like learn how to break down the wall between talking to women. I don't think that that is the case here. But what I do see, and I truly believe this, and I think I've talked about it before, is that we are building this wall again. We are building this wall again, and I see it in the church. I see it in the faith. I see it in theological academia where in seminary, 99% of the books I read were written by men. If you go to a Christian bookstore or are very good websites that I would recommend, those are books that are entirely, you know, for the most part, written by men. And so even like casual theology, Bible studies, stuff like that, it's a boys club. And it breaks my heart because Jesus already broke down this wall, right? Jesus broke down this wall and there's so many great, um, I know we, we laugh about it, um, there's like the sheologians, right? And so all these females who, who are, have this great theology and are, and are teaching and writing books and teaching to each other, and there's so much to be learned from getting the perspective of both men and women. And so Jesus broke down this wall. And we'll see throughout the gospel that Jesus reshapes the way women should be treated. I mean, this is why I believe the Bible is true. And when people say like, well, the Bible is just, it's sort of this happy made up book. It, it's propaganda for your religion. But if this was propaganda, why would you in a society use propaganda that's against everything society represents? How could it be propaganda if, if Jesus is going to talk to a Samaritan and to a woman? It can't be propaganda. It's absolutely countercultural. And so I believe that's a proof that, th that this is not propaganda. This isn't Christians after the point writing this. And so just because a woman can't be an elder, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be a part of theological conversations. With me, definitely, please. Um, with each other, women build each other up. Have great Bible studies. Like, you can do that, and you should. Um, with your families, it is a huge blessing. You especially just think about children, especially like women, like be theologians in your house, like preach in your household. That is such a, such a ministry, as we talked about 
a couple weeks ago. Uh, community groups. One of the things I love about community groups, it's not, it's not a church, right? We're discussing stuff together, and especially women. You know, that's where I, we want that feedback between men and women. What does this look like in a marriage? What does this look like, the dynamics of being a man and a woman in the gospel? You just look at Paul. You know, look at his use of Phoebe and Priscilla. You know, look at the churches that, that, that Paul planted. Almost always the plant begins with at least one woman. I believe it's in Ephesians, I hope I'm getting that right, where it's actually more women than men that plant it. And so Paul, it wasn't an issue for Paul, and, and that's, you know, within a couple years of Jesus being here on earth. And Paul's protege, Timothy, what, what is Paul, when, he, when, he, when Paul goes to Timothy and, and calls Timothy to ministry, what does he say? He's like, you know, he calls, Paul because, he calls Timothy because he has the faith of his mother, you know, Eunice and his grandma, Lois. Like Paul knew, oh, his theology is right on. Why? Because those women in his life trained him up the right way. And so, especially as men, let me just encourage us to encourage all the women in our life to grow in their theology, to grow in their Christology. Do not make it a boys' club. And so this is something we try to do here at Vanguard. I mean, this is something that we definitely try to do. I hope you see that, um, you know, starting with having a, a woman um, leading worship, right? Gabby's not a backup singer. You know, she's a leader as much as the guys are, you know? And that's a leadership position. And we ha have women and girls, you know, read Scripture up here. It's their gospel too. And so... Um, hospitality, community groups. Uh, I know there's women who meet in Bible studies here, who help in children's church, who, who, who can set up and tear down better than I can, the service. And that's awesome. And I hope you see that, that, that women especially, I'm talking to you, that th this is your church as well. You are not a second-hand citizen here. And men, I, we can't let this wall be built up, not in this church. There's only one thing a woman can't do, and that is be an elder. Everything else is up for grabs and to be encouraged. And so I'll step off of my, my soapbox <clears throat> to say that maybe Jesus talking to a woman maybe isn't the most shocking part of, of what he's doing. It's debatable because, as she said, she is a Samaritan woman. Why does she mention the fact she's a Samaritan? Because it's important and so this highlights the second wall that Jesus breaks down, the, the ethnic or, or nationality wall. He breaks down this wall in sharing the gospel. And it's hard to determine which is more shocking of the two because she is a Samaritan, right, this woman. And this is a great place for us to answer the question, what is a Samaritan? And this is going to come across as we go through the gospel. We're going to hear the term Samaritan again and again um, if you want some homework, you could read through, you know, like First and Second Kings. All, the, all that information is in there. But basically, you had northern and southern kingdoms of Israel, right? Israel divides. They become the north and the south. And in 722 BC, Assyria captures the northern kingdom. And Assyria takes a lot of Jews out of the northern kingdom. Assyrians come into that kingdom, including, you know, that's where Samaria is. Jews and Assyrians get married. Jews and Assyrians, uh, their religions come together. And so it, it's completely blended, right? Assyria uh, and Israel. And so in 587 BC, the southern kingdom gets taken over by Babylon, as we read about in Isaiah. Again, many Jews are taken off, 
right? They're taken from, from the promised land, um, but as it says in Isaiah, they make their way back. And so the big difference here, and the only difference here, mind you, is that the Babylonians wouldn't intermarry with Israel, right? And so when they get back to the promised land, or not the promised land, when they get back to the southern kingdom, they're still pure. Like their, their bloodline is still Jewish. It's not mixed with the Babylonians. And so hence, this, this, all this divide is about the fact that the northern kingdom has some mixed blood with the Syrians and the southern kingdom doesn't. Other than that, and the way they live their life, you know, their temple life, their culture, everything is the same. They're both Jewish, but one has some Assyrian blood from, from the conquering in 722. And so Jews did not like Samaritans because they're not true Jews. I'm, they're not true Jews. They're half-breeds, watered down, mixed. In fact, the hate from Jews towards Samaritans was so great that they were considered unclean. Like you couldn't touch them. If we were a Jew and we touched a Samaritan, we were unclean for that day. Um, there's a prayer that's been recorded many times by, by, the, by Jewish people. And this is something that Jewish people would pray about other Jews. Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. Do you feel like that hate? <laughs> I mean, every time I read that, it just blows me away. It blows me away. But yet, like the reality of the fact that this woman is a female, Jesus does not address the Samaritan issue at all. He sees right through it. He's like, no, I see the need. I'm not looking at your ethnicity. I don't care if hundreds of years ago there was this invasion. This is a person who needs me. This is a person who needs the gospel. And I think this is easy enough. Yeah, don't be racist, guys. You know, easy application. You know, hey, don't judge anybody you know, by the color of their skin or ethnicity, nationality. But I think we often fail in this area. I don't think, because I, I think all of us would say that we have never had a situation where somebody's ethnicity or nationality affected the way we thought about them. And so I, I, I want to share this story with you. I know most of my stories are, you know, cute or give a reason why it turned out like this. You know, but, and th this is a very bad story about me. This is me doing very wrong. <clears throat> so I was working at a bakery, fast casual bakery, um, 15 minutes to close. And so we're going to throw away all of our stuff, right? Throw away all, all the baked goods we have, cookies, bagels. Um, we're getting ready to close. And, and this man walks into my store, um, definitely looks like he's not from around there. I don't know where from. But I could tell he wasn't from around there. And then um, he was trying to speak English, and I couldn't understand him. And after a couple of minutes, I, I was able to understand that he was saying he was hungry and that he wanted, like, free food. It took a while, but I thought he just wanted to order, but he was saying he had no money. He had no money to order food and that he was hungry. And, you know, in that moment, I was offended the audacity of this guy. You know, I've been working all day. My back's hurting. It hurt back then, too. I've been working all day. You know, I'm an American citizen. I, I, I was so offended that I told him no. Even though I was about to throw all that food out, I said no. And the worst part, you know, he was very heartbroken. And he walked out to his car, and he got into a car with his wife and his kids. And his kids were the same age as my kids. And 
it would break my heart for, to know my kids didn't have something they needed if they were hungry. But I said no. And as he, as he drove off, I had one of the worst feelings I've ever had in my life. I believe from deep down in my spirit what I did was wrong. And this isn't my commentary on immigration, nothing like that. This is my commentary about an event that, that I will never forget. And I don't know what lens I viewed them through. I don't know if it was my politics, my nationality, um, the fact I was tired from working all day. I don't know what it was, but I know it wasn't the gospel. You know, God showed me somebody who had a need, and I denied it. And it was absolutely wrong. It still breaks my heart. You know, I think in large part, later on in ministry, my, my last place that I pastored in Colorado, it was a place, like the worst place in Colorado. Um, it's where, like, you hear shootings about in Colorado. And, um, but it's an area that had, like, the most diversity, just so much immigration, so much poverty. And I think, in a large part, God used that to help me to go into this area and drive by a bunch of very nice churches to get to this area. You know, because I would never forget that moment. No, the gospel is for everybody. These people, they need the gospel. Again, not talking about immigration, anything like that. I'm talking about the need for the gospel. And so Jesus, thankfully, Jesus looks at the need in people, right? That's what Jesus sees. He sees the need and he breaks down walls to get to this need. And so Jesus is showing and telling us that now the gospel is moving outside of Israel. Right? The gospel is moving outside of Israel. Israel was supposed to bring God to the world. There used to be one people, one chosen people. Their job was to take God to the world. And yet, when we consider the Samaritans, what we see is God's people wouldn't even take it to other of their own people. So just having mixed blood, they didn't go to the nations. They didn't even get outside of their own nation. And so that's why Jesus comes, and he goes to Nicodemus, like we talked about, right? And sets Nicodemus straight. Now he comes to this Samaritan woman, and this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus just exploding, and now it's going to go everywhere. People who you would have never thought, Jewish people, oh my gosh, how offensive could it be for Samaritans and women, women to now know the gospel and to know about God and be God's people. And so that, that wall comes down, and global missions begins and there's still another interaction, another wall that's broken in this. We find this in verses 16 through 19. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And so what we find here is Jesus breaking down the immoral wall with the gospel. The immoral wall is being broken down. And again, we could see from this time of day that this woman, um, she's an outcast, right? Nobody wants to be around her. She's looked down on her peers. And I don't think it's a stretch to tie this very much to the fact that um, she's been around, to the fact that, you know, these aren't giant towns. If she's had five husbands... There's probably a lot going on in common, right? A lot of relationships broken here. So that's at least part of it. 
Sexual immorality is frowned upon. You know, even the Jews, the Jews would say that the Greeks um, or the Romans were sexually immoral. Um, that wasn't really a Roman thing outside of like sex cults. Like even Rome didn't like certain like sexual activity. They weren't completely debased as we see from some of their temples. And of course, even Jews themselves frowned on this behavior. This was huge. And so you don't want to be seen with a woman like this. You don't want to be associated with a woman like this. And yet Jesus, looking at her, highlights her immorality. He doesn't ignore this part, right? doesn't ignore this part because this is a sin issue. This isn't a gender issue. This isn't an ethnicity issue. This is a sin issue. And so he brings it up. You know, notice not like in a condemning God hates this sort of way, right? He just, he brings it up. Yeah, you're right. Tell me about, tell me about what's going on with you, right? Let, let's talk about what's really going on. Let's talk about why you're here by yourself, right? And so he, he points out her immorality, well, just like the gospel, to bring her to him, right? So she sees this need. She's going to confess her need, basically. And so because of this, like, everything starts clicking for her. And we could see this, attitude or not, sassiness or not, like, it's clicking, like, this, this woman is getting it. And we see this in verse 19 where she says, I perceive you are a prophet. That's a huge confession for a Samaritan. So another thing about Samaritans, they don't believe in prophets. And so the last prophet that, that the Samaritans um, would call a prophet was Moses. And they said, oh, everybody else after that, those weren't real prophets. We're waiting for the real prophet. We're waiting for the Messiah, the one who's going to bring restoration. And we see this <clears throat> in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And so we have this least likely person, this immoral Samaritan woman. She's connecting the Christological dots better than Nicodemus did. Right? She's figuring it out. As she's talking through us, wait, yeah, there, we're waiting for somebody who could tell us everything we ever did. And so it's almost like a declaration, right? Like, I think you're a prophet because a prophet would do this, to which Jesus responds in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. And so it's interesting, this completely different dynamic from Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, right? Which took place at night, in the middle of the night, and... Nicodemus really doesn't know who Jesus is, and he should have. Like, Nicodemus should have been, at that point, he doesn't know who Jesus is, but he doesn't get it, and Jesus has to explain everything. And now, in contrast, you have the middle of the day, out in the open, Jesus associating with somebody unembarrassedly, like Nicodemus was embarrassed to talk to Jesus. Jesus is not embarrassed to talk to this Samaritan woman, and she gets it. And so our, my question is, do we share the Messiah with the immoral? Do we share the Messiah with the immoral? I think probably not. And you might say, well, we're not Jesus. Like, what do we know what people do? We can't know that somebody had five husbands. We're not prophets. We don't know their private lives, which is true, absolutely true. But we also live in an age, hopefully an ending age, in which we don't have to infer people's immoral immorality their sexual sin. We live in an age where people flaunt it, right? It, 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 you don't have to be a prophet. You just have to look and listen to people, and they will tell you every sexual sin, and not only that, they will celebrate it. 
You know, it's celebrated, and it, it's for confrontation purposes. And these open, openly sexual people, people who are sinning, they need the gospel as well, right? And so we need to be able to approach them. And what I have seen is not an unwillingness to converse with those who are sexually sinful, especially online. I'm not saying that nobody converses with them. I'm saying it's often done in a condemning manner, which is not what Jesus does here. I believe, you know, when you go online and you say, God hates this, God hates your behavior, God hates that stuff, I think that's a misunderstanding of John chapter 3, which we just went through. You know, John 3, 16, verses 18 you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then, you know, verse 17, which, you know, everybody cuts off at 16. But verse 17, it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And so, Jesus didn't come to condemn. It says that clear as day. But we as Christians, I, I think we think that we need to make up for that or that it's our job somehow to do that. And it's not our job as, as Christians to condemn every sin that we see. They were already condemned, right? That's what the gospel says. When Jesus came, he didn't come to condemn some and save some. Everybody was condemned and he came to save some. And so, but we like to heap on top of that condemnation on people who are already condemned. Like, where's the love in that? Harassing people over and over disrespectfully is not a gospel strategy. You will see no fruit from that. People are only going to be changed by the grace of God, the power of the gospel. That is a gift from God alone to have faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. The gospel of Jesus has the power to transform. Your comments about how God hates this or that is not introducing somebody to Jesus. They need Jesus, not our self-righteousness. That's why we need the gospel too, lest we forget. It's not even our righteousness that saved us to begin with. Right? It's the righteousness of Christ that saves us, that breaks down that wall between us and God. If we forget grace, then we don't give grace. That's why we need the gospel and I, I am not saying agree with them in their sin. I'm not saying ignore their sin. I'm saying love them in their sin. Introduce them to Jesus in their sin. And so what we see what happens when these walls are broken down and people share the faith, as we see here, um, a glimpse of this in verses 27 through 29. Just then, just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking to, uh, with a woman but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into a town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out from the town and were coming to him. And so she takes off, right? The woman takes off and she's, she's starting to share the gospel. Like this isn't even just a guy, a cool guy. Like this, could this be the guy we've been waiting for? And, and the disciples, um, just like people you're going to come across with, they're going to be stunned. They're going to be stunned that you're talking to certain people in our society, right? But then you're going to share the gospel with some people who you wouldn't think to share the gospel with, and they're going to receive it. And they're going to take it to a group of people that we have no access to. 
And we're going to see something incredible happen, as we see in verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of this woman's testimony, right? This outcast woman. He told me all that I ever did. Again, tying back to to what the, the expectation was of the Messiah. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. These were real people. These were real people who had a need and found their Savior, because Jesus didn't let any walls stand in the way of who he was going to share this gospel with. This gospel is absolutely, it's going to go global. It's for everybody. We can see this also in a few verses that we passed over already that I want to go back to, which is verses 20 through 24, where the woman is talking to Jesus. She tells him, Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, and we already talked about how that's not an insult. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so what we see here is Jesus breaking down the walls of worship, like the geographical walls of worship. There's no separation now. If you want to worship God, you just do it in spirit and truth. We don't need to point people to or go to Jerusalem or to a mountain on Samaria to worship God anymore. Like This is good news. I don't know about you, but praise God, right? None of us have to plan that out to, to go to Jerusalem or Samaria. If we are born again, we can worship God. If we are born again of the Spirit, then we can see the truth about God. The truth about God being is that God is awesome. He's perfect. He's holy. He's loving. And we are not. And we are not. And by God's grace, we grow in those areas. We certainly become more like Christ, which is awesome that we, that we become more like God, not God's. But in his holiness, we see that we need Jesus, right? His holiness points us to Jesus. We need the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so the prerequisite for worship is not geographical, it's theological. It is the gift of faith in Jesus Christ. When you have that spirit, you're able to know who Jesus is, to worship God in truth. And if you're in the spirit, you're able to worship God anywhere, no matter where you are, because you're in the Spirit, right? So no matter where you are, you're able to worship. So in conclusion, we have seen in verses 1 through 42, Jesus breaking down all these walls to share his gospel, sharing with an immoral Samaritan woman by this well, a great example of Jesus showing us the heart of God, the spread of the gospel, the power of the gospel to work in ways that we, we cannot undermine, right? We just need, we just need to get it out there. And so, uh, real quickly before we finish, I just want to ask us two things as it, as it pertains um, to these verses. And the first one is, what are our walls? What are our walls? What stops us from sharing our faith and hope in Jesus? 
What people don't we think about or, or share our, our faith with? I'm sure most, if not all of us, like we don't have a problem talking to Samaritans. We've probably never met somebody we would say is a Samaritan. But what about people who are openly practicing sin? What about somebody who's pretending to be the other gender and dressing up like the gender that they're not? Are we going to talk to them? What about people who look differently than us and speak differently than us? How about people whose politics are more liberal? Do we see these things and put up a wall? When we see these things, do we put up a wall? Or when we, do we see these things, do we think they need the gospel? And so we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind to see these things and not be scared, not be afraid, not make judgment, but look at the need. Do these people need Jesus? Secondly, where is our well? What I mean by that is where do we meet people? Where do we meet people who aren't Christian? Do we even have space in our lives that we're not around Christians? I've been in that position where I worked for a Christian company and, and was a pastor and went for almost a year and a half and maybe had three gospel conversations because I was in a bubble. I remember one of my mentors telling me, frequent the same establishments frequently. Go to the same coffee shop on the same day of the week or every day of the week, right? Start forming habits. Start showing people where you're going to be. Be that person who's always reading that Bible. Be that person that they, someone else always sees that is, that is so nice to them. I have seen so much fruit from this over the years in my life and many others. And it has to be a strategy. You have to do this strategically. And I don't know where your well is, but I know you can reach people I can't, just like I can reach people that you guys can't. And that's okay. Like many skills in life, the best availability, our best ability is availability. So we need to be intentional about where we create space to meet others who need the gospel and make sure we don't put up walls that stop us from seeing the need for gospel in others. Let me pray for us. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.